0: Hi, I'm Jamie Brickhouse, and I've been sober for seven years, um, well, seven plus years. I, my, my sobriety date is December 29th, 2008, so you can do the math. And my drug of choice was alcohol, although I certainly did lots of other drugs um, along the way, uh, pot, cocaine, ecstasy, acid... Um, I never got to heroin, uh, but, but alcohol was uh, my true love. And it was a love, um, as, as many addictions are. The first person who called me an alcoholic was Eddie Fisher. Actually, I'm sorry, let me correct that. The second person to call me an alcoholic was Eddie Fisher. Eddie Fisher, for those of you who don't know, was Elizabeth Taylor's fourth husband, um, his second wife, whom he left for Debbie Reynolds in a famous affair, and I, the the when that happened, I was his publicist for his memoir. Been there, done that, and it was in that memoir he talked a lot about his um, addiction, and he was sober at the time. So he was in in New York. I worked in publishing as a book publicist uh, as a book publicist. I was about thirty or so years old when this was when this occurred. And so I was taking him around to promote his book um, in New York City. He was staying at the Waldorf, and we went, we had some downtime, and we went back to the hotel, and he went up to his room to freshen up, it was about 4.30 or so. And I thought, well, I've got an hour or so to kill. What else to do but have a drink? And I went to um, the lounge there uh, outside of the restaurant called Peacock Alley, And I ordered my drink of choice uh, because I was a very sophisticated drinker. Beef Eater Gin Martini, dry, up with a twist. And nothing could... That that moment um, was what I loved about drinking. There I was um, in a glamorous situation, the Waldorf Astoria, uh, with a sophisticated cocktail, a martini, uh, and... I was kind of living the dream after having grown up in a small town in Texas. Here I was um, in New York, small town boy made good. And as I'm sipping that martini, I look up and there's Eddie Fisher's face kind of floating in front of me. And he says, ah, you're having a martini and it's not even five o'clock and you're drinking alone. You're an alcoholic. I laughed and I didn't tell him that it was actually my second martini. Um, but that moment summed it up. And, and it was it was it would be a few more years um, before I would even think about getting sober. And the first person who called me an alcoholic was my mother, Mama Jean. And she um, I had kind of an addictive relationship with her. She um Was actually kind of a a small town version of Elizabeth Taylor um, in terms of looks. I mean, she was, you know, had the big raven mane of hair that was always done to a tease each week and makeup camera ready. And she just loved me. I was her little Jamie doll and she absolutely adored me. And, um, Growing up in that small town in Texas, my parents loved the theater, and they loved parties, and they loved entertaining, and I was a little precocious gay child, and I was more comfortable being around adults than I was my own peers, and to me, what I saw at my parents' parties and what I saw in on movies and in television shows um, was that glamorous world of drinking and to me alcohol was a fast ticket to adulthood and i the first drink i had and i didn't have i did not recall this memory until after i got sober but it was my father's whiskey and soda it was probably a whiskey and soda and i don't it wasn't a full drink i just i took a sip of his drink and i don't remember how it tasted um other than that it tasted like being an adult. And I thought, this is what I want. This is this is the way to go. And I was probably fourteen the first time I was drunk. I don't think that was my first drink, but it was the first time I was drunk. And then I had that moment that so many um alcoholics talk about of feeling like you had arrived and that everything was right in the world and this is what life was supposed to be like. I was 14, as I said, my freshman year in high school, I had was a part of the drama club and I was with two of my new best friends. Um, we were kindred spirits, and after growing up as a, as a gay boy, not feeling like I fit in, I felt like I fit in with these two people. I felt like I'd finally found my tribe with these um, friends. And on, to top it off, we all got drunk together, and it was fantastic. And I was like, oh, this is what life is like. This is what being an adult is all about. And I, my drinking took off from there. I I continued to be, um, I didn't have any serious consequences because of it. I was a good student. I was smart. I kept up my grades. I kept up all my extracurricular activities and, um, you know, continued to succeed in life and to be that best little gay son. Um, whom my mother loved so much, and she was always on to me, though, or from an early, not always, but from an early age, she was on to my drinking, and she saw that drinking as something I'd inherited from my father, because she, Mama Jean, was not a um, a drinker. She was a social drinker, which also, I did, I thought I was a social drinker, meaning I like to drink socially, but a social drinker, I later learned, um, a definition of that is someone who can take or, or leave the drink. Uh, my father was a heavy drinker and and it was a bone of contention in their marriage, so she saw that in me uh and she didn't like it and as a matter of fact, my first blackout um uh occurred with her i had been to i had been overserved at a at a um party before a school dance and did not remember an entire conversation with her um And she also had a lot of high hopes for me um, in terms of uh, she also. Another thing she saw in me was my talent for writing, which I also inherited from my father, not her. And she always wanted me to be a writer. And I kind of minimized that that talent. And, you know, and she would point to me and say, you should be a writer. That's what you should be doing. I'm telling you, that's your ticket. And I did some writing, um, but I didn't. I didn't listen to her, and I didn't listen to her about the drinking either, and I went on to um, to college and did well in college, and my drinking um, escalated in college uh, because I had, the, you know, I was no longer under, under her watchful eye, and I had the freedom that we get in college, uh, and I also experimented with um, recreational drugs like ecstasy, which I absolutely loved, um, cocaine, uh, pot, uh, which I did plenty of but never really liked, uh, acid, and um, and then of course the drinking, the drinking, the drinking, the drinking, and then I went on to New York where I had all, you know, I also was kind of, I, I was in the theater uh, world in high school and college and wanted to be an actor, but I never quite had the um, the balls to really pursue it. And and also, Mama Jean didn't... She kind of poo-pooed that. Um, as much as she loved um, theater and exposed me to that world, uh, she did not encourage me because she thought it was too hard and thought that my real talents uh, lay, in, lie, lay in writing. And um, so I kind of half-assed did a little bit of acting and comedy when I came to New York, but I got... Um, um, into publishing also through Mama Jean because she had had heard about this uh, postgraduate course in book and magazine publishing called the Radcliffe publishing course which is now the Columbia publishing course and I took that got into publishing and started my career uh, in that world and it and it went well Um, And I remember this was 1990 when I started in publishing and and they the word on the street was that uh, publishing was was famous for being a, a drinker's paradise and um, famous for the three martini lunch. And they said um, there were articles when I arrived that the three martini lunch was dead. And I thought, well, I'm going to bring it back. And I did. Um, I don't know how many people followed me, but there were enough. Uh, and. So again, I felt like I had arrived. I had what I'd always wanted growing up in that small town in Texas was to be an adult. I didn't want to be a child, and I, and I was impatient to get to um, to the sophistication and glamour that I saw um, through alcohol. And believe me, I loved everything about drinking. I loved the taste of it. I loved the uh, the glassware. I loved bars from high to low. I loved parties. I loved going to them. I loved throwing them, uh, and it was quickly became my identity. You know, I was, I was, I was a drinker, and I did it well. And a lot of people, you know, um, loved me for that. Even if they weren't big drinkers, they just thought that you know I had it all together, and it, I, I, I think I made it, uh, you know, look kind of sexy and glamorous to some people, and. The, um, I continue to do well in my career. Um, I did a little bit of, of freelance writing early on. I also did some stand-up comedy. But if it didn't take off um, or if there was any kind of, um, if I got any kind of bad feedback, I would rather than just keep on going with it, um, I stopped. And also, the drinking was escalated. And by the time I was in my early twenties, I was drinking every day, and sporadically doing other drugs. But but um, I had become an everyday drinker by my early twenties. And and my, as I said, my job, uh, my career was going well. I was getting you know I was pro- getting promoted and and um, getting bigger projects and and you know and then moving on to different uh, publishing houses. And I also used my career as an excuse to no longer pursue the writing um, or the um, uh, comedy or acting well not acting but comedy Um, because i just you know i had too much i didn't i didn't have i didn't have the time to do that because i had my job um and then i had drinking because i uh you know it was work during the day and then drinks at night um whether that was at home or it was, you know, the two drinks after work, which was never two drinks, by the way. It was, you know, four or more. And as the drinking escalated, the problems escalated. And I'm, I'm a classic dyed-in-the-wool alcoholic in that I. it was all fun at first. Then it was fun with some problems. Then it was a lot of problems with some fun. And then it was all problems. And the problems... Um, Gosh, there were so many. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, well, let me just give you one little quick story. I loved fur, um, and growing up in uh, in Texas where you really didn't need a fur coat, um, again, fur was very glamorous, and all the women, uh, my parents' friends, when they would show up at my parents' Christmas parties, always wore fur, no matter um how hot it was outside. You know, they could show up in their Cadillacs and Lincolns in air-conditioned fur and parade into our house with, into our air-conditioned house with black minks and silver foxes and um, white rabbits. Uh, But the fur that fascinated me the most was Old Lady Dorothy's Black Persian Lamb. And it, uh, with its, it was unlike any of the other fur with its, it had this strange squiggly raised pattern of black satiny fur that looked kind of like a coxcomb. Flower, or, a, or the surface of a brain, and, and it, it kind of haunted me, and, and when, 10 years into living in New York, I found a black Persian lamb at a, a flea market. It was hanging all by itself on a, a um, chain-link fence as if it had been waiting just for me, and I paid $150 for it, another $150 to have it altered to fit me, and I could not wait to wear it, and I wore it on the very first day that it was ready, and uh, wore it to the office and then couldn't wait to show it off to my best friend um, at a drink date that we had every day after work. Um, And we had four martinis. He did what I should have done. He went home to his boyfriend. I um, was feeling too sexy and too too high, um, you know, to waste that four martini high. So I kept going. I went on to the... um, the sodomite resorts or the gay clubs, as I call them, um, over in Chelsea and to show it off. And it was a big hit. And, um, you know, all the guy, oh, my God, this is a fabulous fur. What is that brain fur? Um, and then I ended up uh, scoring some coke. And, you know, I wanted to up the ante because I was having such a good time and went to this bar called the Rawhide, which was ostensibly a gay, I mean, a leather bar, but all were welcome. However, I can assure you, I was the only one wearing Persian lamb. And I parked that Persian lamb on the back of a stool and then bumper carred around that bar all night doing the coke until it was gone. And I went back to get uh, more, to get another drink, lifted up a peacoat on the bar stool to get mine underneath. And it was gone. And it was gone. Um, I the first day I wore it, gone. This was something I loved so much, and it. I lost a lot more things after that. Um, I lost my great grandfather's gold signet ring. I lost a pair of Gucci sunglasses. I lost a job, and I nearly lost my life. Um, so it took me a while um, before after that happened. Before I could sober up um, literally and figuratively to the fact to, to make that connection between booze and loss. And so after that Persian lamb coat evening, there was like a series of evenings where it kept getting worse. And and I kept um, lowering my standards or, or moving that imaginary line um, that uh, many sober alcoholics talk about Um that happened in their, in their drinking career, um, to the point, you know, where I was going out and and it would be two drinks after work. I was just going to have two drinks after work and then go home and, uh, two drinks became four drinks, became six drinks, became scoring some cocaine, became, uh, getting robbed, um, by the drug dealer and having to cancel all my cards. This happened over and over. And finally, I, one of these nights happened And I was just so beaten down by it, and so mortified. I finally had had enough, and I called uh, a former boss of mine who used to be a drinking buddy who had since gotten sober, and told him I needed help. And that was the first moment. And he came. He left. It was a a work day, and he left the office and came to my apartment and talked to me while I had a a screwdriver, um, and took me to my first meeting. And that week and. I was in heaven. And I thought, oh, my God, this was it was a revelation, you know, that I don't have to drink. And I went to meetings, uh, sober meetings for the next few months. But I couldn't stay sober. And I hadn't there were those 12 steps on the wall. And I thought, well, I don't need those. uh, And I don't like those. And I grew up um Catholic, and I had turned my back on the church as soon as I left home. I grew up going to mass, but I thought, you know i don't I don't want to be a part of a church that doesn't want homosexuals and the whole God thing. I wasn't necessarily an atheist, but I just you know didn't want to go there. and um, so I was in and out, not in and out i was I was off and on sober for the next few months, but going to um, meetings and then I had a, a trip planned to Rio de Janeiro. And I thought, you know, I can't go to Rio and not drink um, but one, But after that trip, I am going to come back and roll my sleeves. I'm going to have fun. And then I'm going to roll my sleeves up and get this whole sober business under control. And I went and I drank and I got in trouble, but not enough trouble. And I came back and I thought, you know, I'm gay. I have red hair, and I like to drink a lot. That's who I am, and I saw this as a healthy form of acceptance. And I said, I'm a functioning alcoholic, and as long as there's the word functioning before alcoholic, I'm okay. And what I learned in those meetings, I I listened to what everyone had to say in those meetings, you know, and about how what they did and what happened to them, and guess what? They lost their jobs. They tried to kill themselves. They ended up in rehab. They went to jail. Well, none of that had happened to me at that point, and I thought, you know, I've heard all that. So when it if it gets to be that bad, um, before it gets to those to that point, then I'll come back. Well, guess what? The next few years, the alcohol, the the drinking, and the and some of the drugs escalated, and it got worse. Um, and some of those things started to happen to me that I said were not going to happen to me. I got fired from a job, which I couldn't realize at the time was because of the drinking. Uh, and that devastated me and mortified me. Uh, I was mortified or humiliated me. And I, even though I got another job, a good job right away, um, I still couldn't get over the fact that I was starting to fail, you know, that I had always done well in school. I was the best little boy. I had always done well in my job. And then, then I got fired and I felt it was unfair. Um, which guess what? That increased the drinking to the point that I was a, um, uh, a rat, not only an everyday drinker, but I had become a morning drinker. And by the way, the, out, the, the hangovers were colossal and uh, paralyzing and I at this point I was hungover every day and, and it wasn't a matter of of uh am I gonna be am I hung over today? It was mm the hangover's not so bad today. You know, it's better than yesterday and I look terrible and I had that classic alcoholic moment of looking in the mirror every morning or almost every morning and saying, You're a piece of shit and you look like shit and you need to get to those meetings and I couldn't do it because I was powerless. And um, I was powerless over alcohol. And I was also at this point um, so depressed, uh, and alcohol is a depressant, which Mama Jean used to love to uh, to remind me. And uh, I was suicidal. And I remember lying in my bed on those days when I couldn't get up, couldn't get out of bed, and I was missing work a lot. Um, at this point, I was almost drinking myself out of that new job and wishing for death and wishing that some force would pull me from that bed. I, was, I live on the 10th floor of my apartment building, would pull me from that bed and defenestrate me, throw me out the window. Um, and I thought about suicide every day. And uh, then one day I... I thought I was going to just sleep in because I was so hungover um, and be, you know, and I I sent an email to my boss saying that I was going to be late and uh, that I had a a business breakfast with someone. And when I woke up, it was about noon and I looked at my email and then she had responded and said again, meaning this, I had used this person as an excuse like the week before. And I freaked out and I thought I can't do this anymore. And it was a very impulsive move. Um, I grabbed the Ambien sleeping pills that I had been taking uh, to try to uh, fall asleep faster so that I could A, sleep through the night, and B, so I wouldn't drink so much every night, which none of it worked. And I took those pills, and um, my um, long-suffering boyfriend, um, who stood by me throughout this, by the way, he's, he, was, he we've been together for 25 years, Michael, and he showed up from work to find me in bed and um, took me to the hospital where I detoxed for a week, and then I went to rehab. So guess what? All with those people I'd heard, you know, the the few years before about um, losing jobs and trying to kill themselves and going to rehab, well, guess what? It all happened to me, and I'm thankful and grateful that it did, Um, and I'm grateful to be alive, of course. And I went to rehab for um, 60 days longer than the usual 30. I needed that time. I needed, at that point, I needed to be um, pulled out of society because um, sober meetings alone um, would not suffice. I needed more. And and when I came back, I went um, into an outpatient um, program for the next three months and uh, would was involved in group therapy as well as one-on-one sessions and then I continued when that was done I continued with that um, same therapist and so therapy is still part of my sobriety today as are sober meetings um, in my case AA meetings and and then I started doing the, and, and I, I had a sponsor those years before I re, re, um, connected to that sponsor and we worked those 12 steps and I remember having a conversation with uh, Mama Jean one time about she was upset that I wasn't going to the Catholic Church and she didn't go all the time anymore as well. And um, and she said, uh, what did she say, she said, you need, you know, she said, you, uh, you need you're missing out on, uh, I'm worried about you because of, uh, you know, you need the faith. And I said, well, you know, I don't, you don't go to church anymore. You know, and she said, ah, that's not what I'm talking about. I said faith. And she said, oh, I know what it was. She, her first husband before my father had died um, in a plane crash when she was 29. And she said, um, she said, you know what got me through those dark days? And I said, the church. She said, no, faith, faith got me through it. And I didn't quite know what she meant, um, or understand what she meant, and until I got sober, and until I'd been sober, rather, for for a while, and um, so after the, the rehab, I, I, I so I was doing all the stuff I should be doing after rehab, I had a sponsor, I was working the 12 steps, and I was going to meetings, uh, which I always loved, but... There and I but I remember when I was in rehab looking on the on the slogans on the wall and it said, "This is a program for people with a desire to stop drinking and I thought, well, shouldn't it be this is a, a program for a people who need to stop drinking because I knew I needed to stop drinking because I could not drink safely and it it didn't work for me anymore and I didn't understand that it was that you have to have the desire for it to work and I thought I had the desire um, but Oh, seven months after rehab, a friend hurt my feelings and I drank over it. Um and I was and then a couple of days later I was back in the back in the program and on the sober path. And then seven months later I felt overwhelmed at work with a project that I thought I couldn't handle and I drank over it. And uh then seven months later, I call it the the seven month itch, I um Was out at the beach, this beach on Fire Island, lovely place, and it was, it was, everything was great. My life was going well. Um, It was a wonderful weekend. The weather was perfect. I went to a meeting. I was happy in that meeting, and like a robot who short circuits, I went from that meeting right to a bar and ordered a Cape Cod. And for the next few months, I drank secretly because no one close to me, I couldn't tell anyone close to me that I was drinking because they wouldn't, you know, they would have they wouldn't have stood for it or or at least accepted it so i was drinking secretly and that was torture because um then i really couldn't and then i had to you know you know watch how i drank and i was secretly um trying to stay sober as well so i would i would drink and then i would go and then i would go be dry for a while and, and continue to go to meetings and um in meetings they have you count days when you're um, less than ninety days out, out loud, you know, so that you own it and and I couldn't and I had already done that before so many times that I was mortified to that I had to that I had to admit that I was yet again counting days. so I thought, well, I'm gonna count days silently um, and then once I have ninety days, then I'll let everybody know and I couldn't do it um, I couldn't maintain. Sobriety. I would give you know ten days, seventeen days, twenty days, twenty-five days, etc. And um, so there were two big moments that got me sober. I was supposed to um, go out with someone uh, who who wanted to go out for for a drink date, and um, he wanted to go to the um, to 21, which is a very glamorous, old-school New York restaurant, and have drinks there. And I thought, wow, mm. I, I had about 17 days when he, he made the invitation, and I thought, oh, you know. And I sat on it for a while, and I hemmed and hawed, and I thought, you know, I only have a few days anyway. Why not make the date? And and in, in again, it it all what 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 all that was about was that same glamour and sophistication and um, you know, that 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 I went after from the time I was five years old. And I said yes. And we made the date and it was for December twenty ninth. And um I worked in Midtown at the time near that near the twenty one club in New York. And uh it's it was pretty dead time at the office, so it was it was, you know, not much was going on and I thought, you know, I'm gonna drink today. I might as well go over to the Museum of Modern Art and see this one Joan, uh, Joan Moreau uh, uh, exhibit. And while I'm there, you know, might as well have a glass of wine or two at lunch. And I got there, and you couldn't move. Um, you couldn't get near the entrance because of all the tourists. And I thought, well, oh, well, it's it's too much trouble. You know, I'll just grab a sandwich and go back to the office. I went back to the office, the guy... Texted to me, said that he was sick and had to cancel. And I looked up at the ceiling and I said, uncle. Now, I could have looked at it another way. I could have said, oh, that's too bad and rescheduled the date. Or I could have seen it as a sign from my higher power that the jig was up. And that's how I chose to, saw it, to see it. And I went to a meeting the next day and said I had one day and I haven't had a drink Since, But it was still, it was still difficult. Um, I was still having difficulty through those early, through that first year. And meanwhile, um, Mama Jean, who had always been, who was so proud of me for finally, you know, for, for, um, for being in the program, for not drinking, she was the one who put me in rehab when I, um, when I had that horrible suicide attempt. She came up to New York, flew up from Texas, and was the one who um, got me into rehab and and footed the bill. And so I certainly never told her that I had been relapsing, and she was starting to lose her mind. Um, and we didn't know what was going on, and later it, it, later found out it was this thing called Lewy body dementia. Uh, I think Alzheimer's only weirder and worse. Um, But when she first lost her mind and had to be hospitalized in a geriatric facility, um, we just knew that she was out of it. So I went down to see her and, you know, I was I was hoping I could do for her what she had done for me. You know, I I hopped on that plane like she'd hopped on the plane for me to fly to her rescue and um, went to see her in the hospital and my father and brother had warned me that she may not know me and, you know, and, and that when it was time to say goodbye that um, it was best just to kind of drift away. So when I saw her there, she um, she said, uh, at one point she said, oh, with your pretty red hair, you almost remind me of. And then her words just kind of trailed off and everything she said during that visit, lacked the one thing that she had never lacked, and that was conviction. And when I turned to leave her, she grabbed my arm in a vice grip, and I turned around, and she was staring me down in the scary way that she could have. And she was pointing her finger at me, and she said, You've been drinking! I said, No, I haven't. And at that point, I was about seven months sober, the seven-month itch. And she said, you better not be. And I said, I haven't. I said, remember, mama, you took care of that. You don't have to worry about it anymore. That's all behind us." She said, you better. It better be. You you promised me. And I thought to myself, you know, who would blame me if I drank over my mother losing her mind? And then I thought, there's another way to look at it. If you can't do it for yourself, do it for her. And I turned back to her and I said, I promise. And that was the last time that she was, that she was Mama Jean. And that was the last time, well, it wasn't the last time I drank because I was sober already, but I I can, I stayed sober um, ever since. And I haven't had a drink and have been sober now, as I said, uh, seven plus years um, and they say that you can't, it, it, again, it's a, it's a program for those with a desire. And, um, and I have that desire. And you have to stay sober for yourself, not for someone else. But in that moment, in those early moments of, of getting sober, you have to do whatever works. And for me at that time, uh, what worked for me was being sober for her. And, and now I do it for myself. And the way I stay sober today is um, I continue to go to meetings all the time. Um, I've done a lot of service in meetings, um, you know, whether that's uh, what they call hospitality, um, bringing the food, uh, serving it, um, speaking at meetings and sharing my story like I'm doing now, um, just speaking up at meetings, um, and also being ready uh, and willing to talk to anyone who needs my help. Um who's trying to get sober or who's already sober for a long time, but but is is having problems and is struggling. And you know, it's it, the way the program works, it's one alcoholic helping another alcoholic and and that's a huge gift. and so I want to talk about um, some great some some gifts of sobriety that have happened um, um because of the two F's the F's, that's F is in Frank, but the two F's I'm talking about are fear and faith. And fear, um, I heard a lot about fear when I started getting sober, and then I thought, well, I don't, have, I don't have, I'm not afraid of anything. Our, you know, to me, fear was fear of snakes, fear of water, um, fear of getting drafted into the military. Those were real and tangible fears to me. And I didn't realize that I had lived a life full of fear. Um I was I was afraid of trying anything that I really wanted to do because I was afraid that it wouldn't work out or that I would fail or that I'd be rejected or that I would be made fun of. So I didn't pursue acting. I didn't pursue writing um because if they didn't if they didn't land in my lap, like a lot of other things frankly did land in my lap, um If it took too much work and too much faith um, of just putting it out there and and, and giving it a try, then I, I, I didn't give it a try. And what has come out of being sober is letting go of those fears, or rather facing those fears and accepting them, and then moving past them. And in other words, that'll, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway. And um, and I've done that, and I started to write. Um, I returned to writing a few years uh, sober. Started doing some freelance writing, some magazine writing, and then um, started writing a book. And I wrote a book about my two most important uh, my two most important relationships, booze, and my mother, Mama Jean. And I wrote it not because I wanted to help anyone, but because I'm a writer and an artist, and that is the story I wanted to tell at this time. But I mean, I also knew that it could, it, it, my story could help someone, and I and I have since heard that it has. The book is called "Dangerous When Wet: A Memoir of Boo Sex and My Mother." And since it came out, I've I've heard from a lot of of uh, of non alcoholics. Um, who know alcoholics, um, and it, it has helped them understand the disease. And I've also heard a lot from other alcoholics, who are both those who have been struggling to get sober, and those who are already sober and identified with the story, which is, is hugely gratifying to me. And um, and and as a result of the book, I've started performing because I've gone back to um, not stand up comedy, but of another form of performing storytelling. And I've been performing stories um, adapted from the book um, at places like the Moth and um, many other great storytelling venues in New York City, and it's been fantastic, and um, my mother, Mama Jean, you know she uh, she died six months after that moment that I talked about earlier. Um, the uh, Lewy body dementia she had was very aggressive and took her quickly, which was actually a gift because you don't live well with that disease. And but, I, you know, when when I when I was finally writing and serious about, you know, writing the book and I was in a writing workshop and and it was always a dream of hers that I become a writer. And I, uh, I remembered all those times when she would you know say to me, you should be writing. That's what you should be doing. And in later years, she would, whenever she said that, she would add to it, but don't write about me until after I'm gone. So I think it was her way of giving me permission uh to write about her. And um I am so happy today to to be I, I am, you know, there were a lot of you hear a lot of people say I'm a grateful alcoholic, and you know, in early sobriety, most people don't get that, and I certainly didn't, but I do now because it has it's it's just part of who I am and it's been part of my journey and I certainly without the drinking, which I admittedly did have a lot of fun with early on uh, and I and I don't regret those those moments those times those memories um, but it also made me who I am today and made me uh, both um, a writer and Um, a good son and a person who's willing to help other people because that also helps myself. And I'm glad to have shared my story tonight, today, this afternoon, whenever you're listening. Thanks.
1: You have been listening to Qualified. Qualified is not affiliated with any recovery program, All organizations, institutions, books, people, places, things, and opinions expressed by each guest are entirely their own, part of their own journey of recovery, and not intended as medical advice. Qualified will never make a profit. We are self-supporting based on our own contributions and those of listeners. If you would like to donate to Qualified, please write us at qualifiedpodcast at gmail.com. All contributions go toward the production of the show, with any extra monies being donated to a pool of recovery-based organizations as suggested by our guests. If you have a story of recovery and you would like to be a guest on Qualified, please write us at qualifiedpodcast at gmail.com. If you are suffering from an addiction, there is help for you and there is hope for you. We on this podcast are living proof. Thank you for listening.